Well, we've already seen our own child prodigies here at South Shore. There might be a Steven Spielberg in there somewhere. And uh, when I think about our kids, and then I think on the incarnation of Christ, I can't help but wonder, what was Jesus like as a kid? What was he like when he was two? What was he like when he was five when he was nine, when he was 11, we know a little bit about what he was like when he was 12. We'll get into that next week. What about through those awkward teenage years? What was it like for Jesus to, to develop like we all do, to go through puberty, for his voice to drop, for him to begin growing a beard, for him to wrestle with all of the temptations that are common to especially young boys? I mean, these ideas, although they're not directly addressed in Scripture, we are invited to think on these things. Uh, the very doctrine of the incarnation, which says that Jesus is fully human, that everything that makes you and me human, Jesus shared, that, that doctrine itself invites us, actually compels us at some level to think about these things. And, and it's, it's not good enough to just say, well, Jesus didn't, didn't struggle, he didn't go through awkward years, he didn't have temptations, because the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that he was tempted in every way as we are. And yet he was without sin, which, which makes it even more impressive. So you think about, I mean, part of the curse, right, the pain of childbearing, there's childbearing and then there's child rearing. Part of the curse is now we have to raise up little sinners. So, so that obviously doesn't apply to Jesus, but what would a sinless child look like? What would, what would he act like? Would he have a sense of humor? Would he laugh? Would he play peekaboo? All of these questions fall within, and, and as you get to know me more, I believe that, that we are invited to exercise what I will call sanctified imagination. You've heard me say it before. What does it mean, sanctified imagination? It means in some ways to go beyond the, the surface of the biblical text, but you do that within the boundaries that the Bible establishes. And the Bible will come to life so much more vividly if we can do that. Now, some, some imagination is more sanctified than others, right? And so it's helpful to do this kind of thing uh, within a community, and, and more than that, we have to recognize that it's a fine line between sanctified imagination and reckless speculation. That's a fine line. But, but what we don't want to do is say, well, I don't want to get into reckless speculation, therefore the Bible's going to remain to me a, a flat book. We... we play within the boundaries that the Bible establishes, but then we are invited to think on these things. What was Jesus like as a kid? So, so this morning what we're going to do, and next week as well, is we're going to play within the boundaries that Scripture gives us, but then we're going to ask questions. We're going to think on these things. We're going to wonder. I think wondering is a, is a wonderful part in the Pun, but to wonder is a wonderful thing. To, to wonder, to think, ah, that, that's so fascinating to me. 
So, so part of this morning, we are going to establish the boundaries, and then we're going to push into those boundaries, not past them, and we're going to say, I wonder what Jesus might have been like. Now, we know so very little about Jesus from zero to 30. Reckless speculation has been done about Jesus' childhood years. You can find ancient documents that have Jesus doing all manner of things. Don't go there. God has decided not to tell us very much about Jesus' childhood. So we have to stay in generalities. We have to stay within the boundaries that God has given to us. Uh, but don't you want to know a little bit about childhood Jesus, teenager Jesus, young adult Jesus? Luke does give us some insight. That's what we're going to look at today and next week. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, only three verses that we're going to look at today specifically. As you're looking for your place, would you please stand? We're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 39 and 40, and then verse 52. This is the word of God. When they, Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have told us what you want us to know, and I pray that you would guard us as we explore just what Jesus might have been like when he was a child and a teenager. I pray that you would liberate us to, to use sanctified imagination within the bounds that are safe, in keeping with the doctrines that we know are true from your holy word. And then, Lord, I pray as we consider the, the unparalleled, unique life of Jesus, that even from this life which we cannot attain, that we would draw application for ourselves as we seek to grow until the end of our days or the return of Christ. I pray that you would bless us, minister to us, build us up as one family in Christ, and in so doing, glorify yourself. Speak through me. Would your grace be upon me? In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. As a way of getting into what we're going to look at, I want to look at the broad structure first. Uh, as part of what I'm hoping to do is to help to equip all of us to read narrative on our own. So when you get to a part of the Bible that reads like a story, that's a narrative, there are certain things that, that we want to take into consideration when we're reading it. Now, when you're reading narrative, it helps to notice the broad structure of the text. And, and as we'll see before we're done, that verses 39 and 40 and 52, they are boundary markers within the text. And so knowing that will help us to interpret the text properly. Uh, for us, probably the simplest way to see the, the structure of the text is to look at uh, chapters and verses. 
Now, there, there's a problem with that, though, right? The original Word of God did not come with chapters and verses. That's, that's later. The chapters and the verses are not divinely inspired. They're, they're introduced to help us so that we can navigate God's divinely inspired book. So, so a better way of looking for the broad structure of a text is for looking for certain patterns or textual markers within the text. I bring this up because, like I said, the, the verses we're focusing on today are such markers. So let's just take a look at the broad structure here of, of the text that we're in. Uh, Luke 2.39 reads like this. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now Luke 2.39 concludes a section. It concludes a section that starts in verse 21. We know that because it's a conclusion. It says, after Mary and Joseph did everything that the law of the Lord had commanded them to do, then they went into Galilee. That's a conclusion. So you go back to verse 21, right, which talks about the circumcision of Jesus. Say, okay, that's circumcision of Jesus. That's the first thing that they did in keeping with the law of the Lord. And then what we looked at last week was the rituals of purification at the temple. Well, we've looked at that for the last two weeks. So within that unit of Luke's gospel, it's all about Mary and Joseph fulfilling the requirements of the law of the Lord. And within that section, we have two episodes. The first episode happens eight days after the birth of Jesus when he is circumcised. The second episode happens 40 days after the birth of Jesus when Mary and Joseph take Jesus into the temple to perform the rituals for purification. And in that episode, we know that Mary and Joseph encounter Simeon and Anna. We've spoken about that before. So... so I say that by way of sort of wrapping that up and contextualizing that. You see the boundary markers there, verses 21 and 39. Now, the next section goes from Luke 2, verse 40 to Luke 2, 52. I want you to notice these two verses. This is how you would identify this as a unit because verse 40 and verse 52 are so similar. They create an outer boundary to the unit within. So when you're reading the, the Bible and when you're trying to understand it, you want to understand all of the, these verses together as one unit, even though we're going to be taking two weeks to look into them. So verse 40, what does that say? And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. That's verse 40. What's verse 52 say? And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we see how those two are so similar. They create an envelope or a, an outer boundary for the text. Now within these two verses, there's one episode. And that's an episode of, of Jesus and his family at Passover. But Jesus is left behind at the temple. We're going to look at that next week. Jesus in that episode is 12 years old. So Jesus, or, or, sorry, Luke has given us four episodes of Jesus' life between the ages of 0 and 30. And he's organized them a particular way. So we've got three units. We've got the first unit, which is the birth, which we looked at at Christmas. Second unit we've looked at for the last two weeks, which is uh, Jesus' parents' 
fulfilling the requirements of the, the law of the Lord. Then we have the third textual unit, which has Jesus at 12 years of age in the temple. From these three textual units, we have four episodes of Jesus' life, and that's it. From the time he was born until the time he entered into his public ministry at the age of 30, we have three text units, and though in those three text units there are four episodes. Those four episodes are as follows. We have Jesus in the manger. He's a baby, minutes old. We have the circumcision of Jesus. Jesus is a baby. He's eight days old. We have the purification rituals for Mary. And Jesus there is a baby, 40 days old. And then we have Jesus left behind after Passover in the temple. And there Jesus is 12 years old. That's heavily weighted to the infancy of Jesus from 0 to 30. And what we're going to get into next week, that means that this episode of Jesus in the temple at the age of 12 must be very significant. Right? Uh, Luke, looking at all of the material that he had, I'm sure he had more information than we have about Jesus at this time, says the one episode, other than these three episodes of infancy, that I am going to record is Jesus in the temple. Now, but that's not all we know about Jesus before the age of 30, because Luke also gives us two summary growth statements. And we've already read them. They're the preaching text that we're looking at this morning predominantly. Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.52. When we put all of this together, the three textual units, the four episodes, and the two summary growth statements... We find that Luke has captured Jesus' life in four stages. And he uses a different noun to describe Jesus in four different ways. So we have Jesus described by Luke as a baby in Luke 2.16. We have Jesus described by Luke as a little boy in Luke 2.40. We have Jesus described as a boy, not a little boy, but a boy in Luke 2.43. It's a different Greek word. And we have Jesus described as a man in Luke 2.52. So, so what I've done so far is just show you a variety of ways that, that Luke has organized the life of Jesus from 0 to 30. And actually, if you put all of that together, there is much that we can glean. Much that we can glean. Three textual units, four episodes in his life, two summary growth statements, and four different words that talk about a different level of maturity in Jesus before he is 30. We're going to focus in on the two growth summary statements. So in the first one, we see Jesus as a little boy. So what we're about to hear from Luke is Luke's way in one line of summarizing the life of Jesus from the time that Jesus was zero to the time that Jesus was 12 years of age. Luke 2 verse 40. Let's read it again. And the child grew. And he became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. 
There's three things that Luke wants us to, to notice about the life of Jesus here. He grew physically, just like every other human being has to grow from, from a one-celled, I don't know what it's called, but a baby in the womb, from one cell all the way to adulthood. Jesus grew from the full range from one cell to a manhood, just like we all do if we reach adulthood. So he grew physically. Second thing that we know, he grew intellectually. And we see this when it says, and he became strong. That's a reference more to his mind. Uh, syntactically, it's connected with, and he's becoming strong as he's being filled up with wisdom. So he grew intellectually as we all need to grow intellectually. Uh, uh, what we could do when we were one day old is not the same thing that we can do now. And he grew spiritually. Now, it's important that I nuance this. He never became more or less the Son of God. His, his divine nature was never more or less. He was always fully God. Even when he was in the womb of his mother, he was always fully God. Uh, and yet he had a human soul. We don't often think about that, but this is important, and we get this from many different doctrines. Whatever Christ did not assume in his humanity, he could not heal. So if Jesus did not have a human soul in addition to being the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, then we have no healing of our souls. That Jesus came as a human being, everything that makes you and me a human, Jesus shared, that includes a human body. That's easy for us to affirm, relatively so. He had a human soul, and that human soul had to develop like human souls developed. And in his humanity, in his soul, the favor of God was upon him, and he grew spiritually. Now take a look at verse 52. As a man, Jesus continued to grow. And so this summary growth verse really is, is looking about the development of, of Jesus from the time that he was 12 until he was 30. Uh, let's take a look at it. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man or in favor with man. There's a parallel there in the text. He grew in favor with God, and he grew in favor with man. So again, we see that he's continuing to grow intellectually, that he didn't tap out at the age of 12. He continued to grow intellectually in wisdom from 12 to 30. He continued to grow physically, and that's the word stature. He continued to grow in stature. Uh, the word literally means years. He continued to grow in years, and if in years, in body, in strength. He continued to grow Spiritually, he continued uh, increase, to increase in favor with God. Now you might say, well, how, how could Jesus grow in favor with God? And you're right. In, in one sense, he can't grow in favor. He is the divine son of God. And he always has been. He's always had the full favor of God. He always would have it. But he continued to grow spiritually. And he grew socially. He increased in the favor of man. Now let's compare these two verses, the development of Jesus from 0 to 12 and the development of Jesus from 12 to 30. I, I want us to notice similarities and differences. Well, there are, the most obvious similarity is that uh, physical, intellectual, and spiritual growth are included in both verses. So he's growing physically, he's growing intellectually, he's growing spiritually. In a human sense, his human soul is continuing to grow in some way. 
Notice what's different. There's a fourth element that's included from the time that Jesus was 12 until the time that Jesus was 30. He grew socially in favor with man. Now, why would that be? Why not include that at the beginning? Well, once you become 13, more uh, is, is the age at the time of Jesus, you entered into what was considered full manhood. And you began to participate as a man in the synagogue and all of the traditions of your family, all the traditions of your community and of your synagogue. And, and you would be expected to be uh, fulfilling the law. You were accountable to God in all the ways that your father was at that point. And so it's at the time that you become 13 that other people begin to take notice of you. People begin to uh, speak into your life, good and bad. And so at this time, as he was beginning to participate in the life of, of Israel, he grew in favor with men. And before that, he was, he was under the headship of his father. And so it might have been that people just didn't take that much notice of him. At the very least, it wasn't emphasized by Luke. You'll notice one other difference. What comes first in Jesus' early development? It's his physical development, right? We're told that uh, he, the child grew and became st uh, strong. Strong is, filled with, or is, is connected with the intellectual, but he grew. He grew physically. He was a baby, then he was a toddler, then he was a child, then he was a teenager. The child grew. He also was strong. He was being filled with wisdom. That comes second in verse 40. Look at the order in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom. Intellectual development comes first there. And in stature, though he continues to grow physically. Now, I don't for a moment think that Jesus grew more physically than he grew intellectually between uh, the first phase of his life. And then that reverse, he grew more intellectually after he was 12 and less so physically. It's just interesting emphasis that Luke gives to it. It might have been that that's what the average person would have noticed. Last time I saw you, Jesus, you were this high. You've grown a whole foot. You, we've all said that to our kids, right? So just the regular development of any child. He, he's growing physically and he's growing quickly. In the, in the second half of his life, from 12 to 30, people seem to really notice his intellectual development. What can we conclude from all of this? Well, Jesus was very human. He's human. He's growing. He's developing like you and I grow in development. In his humanity, he had to grow in all the ways that we have to grow. Second thing I want us to notice is that Jesus' development and growth was well-balanced. He grew physically, he grew intellectually, he grew spiritually, he grew socially. This is a well-balanced human life. He wasn't all head and no body. He wasn't, he wasn't um, all spirit and no activity. He was a well-balanced man. You might say he was the best balanced man who had ever lived. So what I want us to do now is to look at each of these four areas of Jesus' development. His physical growth, his intellectual growth, his spiritual growth, and his social growth. We'll make a couple of comments and then we're going to apply this to ourselves. But as we apply it to Jesus, the goal here is to just marvel using sanctified imagination how great Jesus was and is even as a child, even as a teenager, even as a young man. 
Let's take a look at this, physical growth. Jesus' physical growth was especially noticeable from the ages of 0 to 12. Luke puts it first in verse 40, as I said. Now, just how strong was Jesus? How might we categorize his physical growth? Have you ever thought about that? I wonder what Jesus was like physically. I wonder how he grew physically. How strong was he? Now, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I want us to imagine for a moment a human body that grew and developed without the entanglement of sin. What would that be like? What would it be like to watch uh, a young boy grow up without the entanglement of sin? Uh, all of the, the malefacts that sin brings into our physical sphere of existence... They could not touch Jesus because he is without sin. He, he lived the physical life that humanity was supposed to live before the fall. So if we were able to bring generations into the world without having sinned, as God commanded Adam and Eve to do, what kind of creature would we have been physically? The interesting thing about this is that Aging is not a result of the fall. Jesus is untouched by the fall. He's aging. He's growing. So this idea of, of heaven being populated with babies that never grow up. Just wonder for a moment. Think on that for a moment. Uh, why wouldn't they grow up? Is aging directly tied to sin? Or will we all continue to age indefinitely, even after we're resurrected from the dead, but without the consequences of sin attacking and ravaging our bodies? The way we experience aging is the result of sin. We all know that, right? As we get older, our bodies are not operating the way we wish that they were. We become weaker, we become slower, we become uh, more ill, we become more fragile, we can hurt ourselves more easily, we can't do the things that we once did. Jesus grew physically, and he wasn't under the fall. What would that have been like? I don't know, but think for a moment. I imagine, yeah, the sanctified imagination, I imagine that Jesus was a very healthy child. Because the sicknesses, it's not that we sin and therefore God curses us as a direct correlation of I sin, therefore I'm sick. But sickness itself is the result of sin. That, that we live in a fallen world and so the, the physical fallibilities that we experience, including the flu and coughing and strep throat and, and, and every kind of disability, those are all directly related to the fall of humanity. Our sin nature allows our bodies to be weak and frail and susceptible. That's not the case for Jesus. He's healthy. I imagine he was strong. How strong? Well, probably stronger than the strongest person who's ever lived, age appropriately. I'm sure he was fast. A body that moved gracefully and quickly. 
He was athletic, I'm sure. I, I doubt, I don't know this, okay, but I doubt that he was clumsy. Because he, he, he's, he's living the perfect physical life. He's perfectly aware of all of his movements. He, he's aware of himself. He can move himself. He has perfect control. Which means he's probably coordinated and agile, skilled. I imagine he had good endurance and stamina. When I think of child prodigies, children affected by the fall... Uh, think of the, the wonderful physical things that we can still do. I think of Sidney Crosby, for example. He started playing hockey at the age of two. Uh, he was so good at hockey that he had his first hockey, uh, uh, newspaper interview at the age of seven. He was drafted to junior A hockey at the age of 13 and to the NHL at the age of 17. He holds nine NHL records to be the youngest ever hockey player to achieve these feats. Let me listen for you. He was the first rookie to record 100 points and 100 penalty minutes in a season. He was 17 years of age. He was the youngest player ever to record 100 points in a season, playing against the best hockey players in the world. He was only 18. He was the, first ever, or the youngest ever hockey player to record 200 career points at age 19. He was the youngest ever hockey player to record two consecutive 100-point seasons uh, in his, uh, the year that he was 18 and then again in the year that he was 19. He was the youngest ever player voted to the starting lineup of an NHL All-Star game. He was only 19. He won the Art Ross Trophy and the Lester B. Pearson at the age of 20, the youngest ever to do so. He was the youngest ever player to be named to the first All-Star team at the age of 20, uh, he was the youngest ever player to lead NHL playoffs in scoring at the age of 20. And he is the youngest ever NHL captain to win the Stanley Cup at the age of 21. And he has since won another Stanley Cup. Now, Jesus wasn't a hockey player. I, I know that. I get that. But if he had been, or if he had wanted to be, I know that wasn't his mission to win the Stanley Cup. Thank Thank God for that. Much more important things that God sent his son to do. But I imagine that if he wanted to be a hockey player, that he would have been, it would have been within his reach to have been better than Sidney Crosby. What about intellectual growth? This is especially noticeable in Jesus from the ages of 12 to 30. Now, just how smart was Jesus? Uh, when Jesus was... A boy or a teenager, did he look up at the stars and say, I created them? Did he know how he did that? Did he, did he look at human movement and say, I planned and, and established that? Did he have a perfect grasp of our own biology and his own biology? I, I don't know how smart Jesus was. Uh, but imagine a human mind unclouded by sin. Imagine a human mind un, untouched by the fall. Imagine a human mind working at maximum capacity. Uh, what is the best that our brains can do? How much of our brains do we use? Imagine a human mind that uses all of itself. And then what do we do with our, with our brains, with our minds? Uh, it's from our minds that we establish musical and artistic abilities. Uh, 
from our minds that we're mathematical and scientific and linguistic and theological and philosophical and, and all of these disciplines that we can study at college or at university. And, and the world has known its, its child prodigies. I want to give you two, one on the artsy side and one on the more mathematical scientific side. Uh, we think about Mozart. Mozart was composing minuets by the age of five. He was proficient on the violin and the harpsichord at the age of six, one of the best in Austria. You couldn't find anyone better than this six-year-old Mozart. At the age of six, uh, at this age when he was proficient, he performed in the court of Maximilian III of Bavaria. That was not an easy gig to get. It wasn't that he was just trying to uh, entertain young, a young child. It's because he was the best at the age of six. He wrote his first symphony at the age of eight. He was the Salzburg concertmaster at the age of 11, and he had to compose his own symphony in, in, in lockdown to prove that it was he himself and not his father that had this musical ability. He composed two operas in a mass by the age of 12. And he was a sinner, born under the fall. Then there's a man by the name of William James Sidis. He knew the alphabet at six months of age. He read adult books by the time he was two. He invented his own language. He called it Vendergood and wrote an advanced grammar for it at the age of eight. Uh, he was enrolled at Harvard by the age of nine. He, uh, before he died, was proficient at French, Russian, German, Turkish, Greek, Greek, Latin, Armenian, and his own Vendergood language. He lectured at Harvard University to the Mathematical Club on four-dimensional bodies, uh, himself a student at Harvard when he was 11. Now, there are a lot of exaggerated accounts of Citus's life. These are the facts that everyone can agree on. Uh, so if you look him up on the internet, there's a lot of things that aren't true about him. But these are verifiable facts about his life. He was a smart child. And he, he also happens to look a lot like Sidney Crosby, which is strange. So if Sidney Crosby uh, was a mathematician, he, he would be Citus. But Mozart and Citus, remarkable young people, but they had sin natures. They weren't working at maximum capacity. Now, Jesus was not a musician. Jesus was not a mathematician. Jesus was not a linguist. But if he had been or if he had wanted to be, I imagine that his symphony would have been unsurpassed by any composer in any age. Greater than Mozart. His grasp of complex mathematical problems would have been unrivaled. And his ability to learn and speak and write and understand the intricacies of human language would have been perfect. Spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is listed in both Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.52. Just how spiritual was Jesus? Is this a, I mean, is that a trick question? Again, let's understand that as the Son of God, he, He's maintained perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. 
that puts him in a class of his own. It makes it very difficult to talk about his spiritual development. But in his humanity, imagine a man untouched by the fall. Spiritually. In his human soul. Imagine a boy that had nothing to obstruct his relationship with God the Father in his humanity. Uh, there was nothing blocking him. It was, heaven was wide open to him as a boy, as a human being. And in his humanity, he could pray into the heavens with, with no mediator. There is child prodigies even within the spiritual realm. I'm very suspicious of child spiritual prodigies, but I'll give you one by the name of Ezekiel Stoddard. I'm not endorsing him by any means. All I know is that he felt called to preach the word of God at the age of seven, and he was ordained, became a full-time minister and preacher at the age of 11. Now, it is natural for us to be skeptical of such children. It's right for us to wonder if it's wise to elevate a boy so young and for the record, I don't think it is very wise. But I know nothing about Ezekiel. I, I cannot affirm or deny his grasp of the scriptures. It's that, but other people have said something about him, rightly or wrongly. I don't know Ezekiel Stoddard, but I do know Jesus. And I know that at Ezekiel's age, according to Luke 2, Jesus knew more theology and he knew it more precisely than any person who has ever lived or will ever live. And the fact that he continued to develop spiritually as well as intellectually while he was already challenging the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the temple at the age of 12 is astounding. Finally, we come to social growth. Luke doesn't mention this for, for Jesus from the age of 0 to 12, but after 12, we're told that Jesus gained favor with man. Whatever it was that he was doing, uh, people looked on him and approved and said that, that he was remarkable, that his contributions were good and effective and productive, and, and he began to derive respect from his peers, even his peers who were much older, as he, as he interacted within the synagogue and the community as an adult man. Just how social was Jesus? How are we supposed to understand this side of Jesus, him growing in favor with man? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I think we all, at one point or another in our life, experience some social anxiety. We wonder, can we say this or what if I say that? Or what if I put my foot in my mouth? Or, or I'm nervous of being in front of these people. Or how am I going to do this or that or the other thing? And, and we worry about pe what people think of us. And we worry about whether or not we're acting in a way that is pleasing to God. And rightly so. Now imagine a boy and a young man who never ever said anything wrong ever. That every word was perfectly calculated. He never said anything wrong. Everything that he said was intentional. Everything that he said was in perfect balance with the will of God, his Father. Uh, that everything that he said was perfect in content. Everything that he said was perfect in tone. Everything that he said was perfect in timing. That's Jesus. There are 
social child prodigies. I'll give you one. His name is Gregory Smith. Uh, Gregory memorized entire books by the age of one. He could read by the age of two. He skipped grade two and went all the way to grade eight by the age of seven. He completed high school in less than two years by the age of nine. So he, he went from grade two to the graduated high school in the span of three years. And at the end of it, he was nine years old. So at the age of 10, he enrolled at Randolph-Macon College. Now, he decided he wanted to be socially active. And so he became a child ambassador for the Christian Children's Fund. And the, he was the founder of International Youth Advocates. And in this role... He addressed the United Nations General Assembly. He addressed the Florida General Assembly. And he had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the President of the United States. By the age of 12, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He was nominated a second time when he was 13. He has been interviewed by 60 Minutes, Oprah Winfrey, David Letterman, The Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS Morning, and CNN, all before he was 13 years of age. So we have our own child prodigies in, in the social realm as well. This boy curried much favor from our world and the powerful people in our world. Now, Jesus was not a child ambassador. He did not speak to the United Nations or its equivalent. He did not go to Rome when he was 13 years of age and address all of the problems of the empire. He did not work for a non-governmental organization. But if he had, or if he had wanted to be, this boy could have brought world peace. And in fact, he did. His whole life was about bringing peace. But in order to get to the peace, the lasting peace, we have to go through the cross. We don't know much about the life of Jesus before he was 30. We must be careful not to make up stories. I've been musing about what it might be like to grow up without the entanglements of sin. We know that Jesus was fully God, even as a child. We know that he was without sin. Therefore, it's good to use sanctified imagination to open up some space to consider what kind of child Jesus was or could have been. And so we marvel at Jesus, the gift that God has given to us. And that Jesus, how, I mean, if you were as proficient as Jesus in all of these areas, Physically, intellectually, spiritually, socially. What would you do with all of those abilities? Wouldn't you lord it over people? Wouldn't you want to rise to the top? Wouldn't you want to be seen as the greatest athlete that had ever lived? Wouldn't you want to be seen as the smartest man who had ever walked over the face of the earth? Would you not want it have to have been uh, the, the leader of a new religion? Would you not wanted, have wanted to change the world in the here and now as the zealots wanted Jesus to do? And yet what did Jesus do? He rejected all of that and he stayed the course. And there's no accounts of him showing off. Uh, there's, there's no accounts of us even uh, 
seen that anyone was aware of all of these special abilities. The meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you consider a boy who was that great, and yet people, when he was 30 years of age, could say, isn't this just Joseph's son? The carpenter? You add to all of his abilities a depth of humility and meekness, a desire not to bring glory to himself, but to do the will of God and to keep all of these great things about himself relatively unseen. It's amazing. Now, what about us? We're not these things. We're, we're not Jesus' equivalent. And yet, Jesus came to heal the human condition. He came to heal us uh, physically. He came to heal us intellectually and spiritually and socially. He's come to reconcile us, to bring us all together. Now, ultimately, all of this happens when we are resurrected from the dead. But in the meantime, as we desire to grow up in Christ, as we desire to be more like him, can we not aspire to use the particular gifts and abilities and talents that God has given us to invest in them and then to turn them over, not for our own glory, but to imitate Christ in using the things that God has given to us to glorify him. And therefore, as we grow up, it's important that we also seek to, to be uh, growing in Christ in a balanced way. That we ought to grow and make goals so we're growing and, and investing in our physical well-being. That we ought to invest in ourselves intellectually and spiritually and socially. That these are four areas of our progressive sanctification. Uh, that we don't want to get too unbalanced by, by focusing all of our attention in one quadrant to the expense of all of the other four. And so again, as we're at the beginning of a new year, I just want to encourage you uh, to consider, are you investing in a balanced way in your own progressive sanctification? Are you inviting the Holy Spirit to, into your life to say, I want to, to make goals and to achieve them in, in a variety of ways? I want to walk you through an exercise that might be helpful, and we'll close with this. Sometime when you're home with your family or if you're, you know, living alone right now, gather with some friends, do this alone and share it with some friends. Take a blank piece of paper like this, just fold it in half and then fold it in half again. Okay, so you're getting the same template that you see behind me. And then you open it up and just put in the top corner, these words put uh, physical, intellectual, spiritual, and social. And then think of one goal that you might have for yourself in each of those quadrants. And if, you're, if your parents help your children, just one goal in each of those quadrants. And say, and then as a family, you might want to say, well, as a family, what might we want to do to make sure we're more physically active? As a family, what do we want to do in order to, to challenge ourselves intellectually? And you got to know who your kids are and you want to work with them. And then spiritually, what is it that you want to do? Now, you can sort of have a, a doubling up. You want to read your Bible. You want to understand your Bible more. You can grow intellectually in your knowledge of the Bible. And then you get to the spiritual quadrant. You want to say, but I don't want just head knowledge. I want the things that I'm reading about and the things that I'm learning. I want them to change the way I'm living my life and relating to God. 
Or, or maybe your spiritual goal would be, I want to, to develop a pattern of praying more, whatever it is. And then this social quadrant, uh, start with this. If there are any strained relationships that you have, especially in the church or your family, make it a goal to seek reconciliation. And so far as it is uh, able for you to, to be reconciled. But what other goals do you have? Do you want to have people into your home? Do you want to open your home to hospitality uh, once a month or twice a month or four times a month? What is it? So you make these goals, and then prayerfully, you ask Jesus to help you to resemble him more in each of these areas of your life. What was Jesus like as a kid? We don't have a lot of information, but what we do know is that he was perfect in every way, untouched by sin, untouched by the fall. We also know that we are called to grow up into Christ if we have put our faith in him. Therefore, we with Christ ought to grow, mature, and be progressively sanctified. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus grew like any one of us grows. Now, he had advantages that we don't have. And yet, Lord, I pray that as we have come to you, in a saving way, that you would help us to grow up into Christ, that, that you would help us to make goals and to achieve them in these four areas of our life, that we may have balanced Christian lives individually in our families and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.